Back in uh, 2009, I uh, became registered as a counsellor. And uh, one of the requirements of uh, being a counsellor is you have to do ongoing professional development. There's a certain number of points that uh, I need to accrue every year to stay registered. And uh, typically, uh, uh, what that looks like is you need to go to uh, uh, professional development training where they get some expert who, uh, who knows about a certain human uh, condition, who's done, they've done a lot of work on it, and you sit there and you, uh, you listen and you take notes for a whole bunch of hours. Um, and often, just so incredibly helpful. Uh, but I'll tell you, there's a phenomenon about those kind of uh, professional development events um, that uh, I noticed over my time uh, going to them is uh, no one ever argued that humanity's got a problem. Never happened. I mean, the reason why everyone was there is because humanity has a problem in that particular area. And, you know, if you, if you kind of zoom the, uh, the lens out a little bit and you look more broadly at culture, not just at counsellors, I think that's what we find uh, culture-wide. <laughs> no one argues that humanity doesn't have a problem. It's, it's, uh, it's obvious. Um, in all my years living on this planet, and, and I'm racking a few up, um, no one has ever come up to me and said that humans don't have a problem. Uh, but you know what's interesting is that while everyone agrees that humanity has a problem, uh, not everyone agrees on what the nature of that problem is and how you fix it. And that was what I noticed at the uh, professional development stuff that I'd go to is you go to different professional development training in, in particular counselling areas and one um, trainer would say, this is the real kind of problem of what's going on with people. I've, I've diagnosed it. I haven't just observed it. I've diagnosed it. And, and this is what's... Uh, going to fix people. And then you go to the next one and they'd say something different. Uh, this is the world that we live in. You go down to your local bookstore and the self-help section and there'll be um, a whole aisle of people who will be helping you to deal with what's wrong with humanity. Because at the end of the day, what's wrong with humanity uh, is what's wrong with us, isn't it? Um, here's, here's, what I, um, here's how, how I think it uh, breaks down. Um, there's, there's three parts to dealing uh, with a problem. Here's the first one. First thing is you've got to admit that there's a problem. <laughs> That's the first one. The second one is you've got to correctly diagnose the problem. And then you've got to determine the correct treatment for the problem. And then apply that uh, correct treatment for the problem. Uh, now, if you get uh, any of those wrong, uh, it, it, your treatment of the problem is going to get very difficult, very hard. Uh, today we're going to spend our time in uh, Psalm 80. Um, in Psalm 80, it's really, really clear that the people of Israel have got a problem. Uh, but before we read it, let me give you a little bit of the backstory so that you understand it. God had made a covenant with Israel. Uh, in short terms, a covenant is the formation of a relationship. It's the rules which govern it. And this is why marriage is called the covenant. Now, marriage has rules by which it operates. For the Israelites, the book of Moses, or the books of Moses, contain the rules for the nation's relationship with God. Theologians call it the Mosaic Covenant. But history tells us that the Israelites were bad at keeping the, the covenant. In fact, the Old Testament calls them serial adulterers. That's what God calls them. They're very unfaithful. <clears throat> but before that long list of unfaithfulness kind of uh, builds up, God's people get uh, rescued from, uh, from Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. That's where the deal is sealed in the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and then they, God takes them eventually 
to the, uh, to the promised land. And if you look on the screen, you can actually see, hopefully, hopefully you can see some of those uh, words in there, but th- those are the, the allotments for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, that's, that's roughly where they were when, um, when they uh, con- conquered most of the, uh, of the promised land. Eventually, the people in, um, in the promised land um, uh, asked for a king. And uh, it's a rejection of God. Uh, they want a king, someone that they can see to rule over them. And God um, organizes Saul to, uh, uh, to be the king that's going to lead Israel. And he gets anointed. Uh, he's a significant disappointment <laughs> in the end. And, uh, and God opts for someone called David. And if you've been around the church long enough, you know that David um, was called a man after God's own heart. Uh, David rules for a period of time, and then he hands on uh, the kingdom to, uh, to his son Solomon. And what you actually have in the history of Israel is you've got this united kingdom. Israel is just one kingdom, um, and, and it's, it's one kingdom under these three kings, Saul and David and then Solomon. Uh, it was united from around about uh, 1050 BC to 920 BC. And then around about 922 BC, one of Solomon's sons um, listened to the young guys about how he should rule the kingdom instead of the wise old guys, and the kingdom gets divided. Um, ten tribes go to the north or are in the north. Um, that, they become the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. And the other two tribes end up in the, in the south, or they become the southern kingdom of Judah. And you can actually see the breakup of uh, the kingdoms in this map, the, uh, the green and the purple there. Now, while there was the odd brighter moment, both kingdoms were habitually unfaithful to God. God sent prophet after prophet um, to warn them of their unfaithfulness and to call them back to Him. But despite some bright lights along the way, Mostly it's dark. Um, the Old Testament story is dark. They disobey God and things get worse and worse. And in the end, what God does is God sends the Assyrians to take out the northern kingdom of Israel around about 722 BC. And then eventually in 587 BC, God sends the Babylonians to take out the southern kingdom of Judah. As we turn to Psalm 80, um, the, uh, the superscription is amended in the Septuagint. All right, I'm just giving you a few technical things. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And the amendment um, that is added in the Septuagint is that Psalm 80 at the top. It says, concerning the Assyrians. All right? Um, so what this actually suggests to us, and also the content of the psalm, is that um, the psalm was probably written around 720 BC, somewhere there. Maybe the northern kingdom has actually fallen to the Assyrians. And there's this cry in the psalm for God to do something about this horrible, horrible situation that's happening. So if you've got your Bibles there with you, we're going to read Psalm 80 now. It's enough enough of the history lesson. Um, Some of you love history, right? And Psalm's just like, yeah, I'd be happy never to read anything about history. Is anyone like that? You're not going to admit it now, are you? Psalm 80. We use the ESV here, so uh, we're going to read the whole psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Shepherd in the Old Testament is a, is a kingly title. You who lead Joseph like a flock, 
You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Now, why? Why is the psalmist saying that? Well, um, Ephraim and Manasseh were in the northern kingdom, and it looks like Benjamin was kind of a bit in the northern kingdom and a bit in the south. Um, so what, what's the psalmist saying? Like, something terrible is happening up there, God. We need you to do something about it. Um, stir up your might, uh, verse 2, and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You've fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbours and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So for the rest of the message today, I want us to work through the three um, key parts for actually dealing with a problem. In answering the question, how does restoration actually happen? Here's the first one. You have to admit that you've got a problem. <laughs> you have to admit it. Um, this is verse 2, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up your might and come to save us. You know, from the opening lines of this psalm, it's clear that the people are in trouble. There's no doubt that there's something that they actually need saving from and there's a real urgency to it. You know, from the, uh, the outset of the psalm, you actually see the psalmist un unpacking the things that are, uh, that are wrong, the things that are a problem. Go to verse 2. Oh, sorry, it's not verse 2. Verse 4. God's angry with them. <laughs> now, that's a problem, right? That's, I, I want to suggest to you that if God was angry with you, that would be the biggest problem that you could ever face. There is no bigger problem than having God angry with you. Um, now, now, you need to know, I mean, in our, in our experience, anger is rarely righteous. It's rarely good anger. Most of the time, our anger flares up really, really quickly, and it's, and it's oriented toward ourselves. But you just need to know this morning, if that's your only experience of anger, that God, God's anger is not like that. God is slow to anger. You know, it was 200 years from the dividing of the kingdom, roughly 200 years from then to when the Assyrians conquered. That's a long time. <laughs> That's a really long time. Uh, you go and have a look at the uh, books of Kings and Chronicles and you'll see long catalogues of evil kings and people in the nations, uh, in the two kingdoms, doing evil things. You know, God's anger has got a slow burn to it, but it is there. There is an anger which isn't sinful. You know, and in a lot of ways, 
I think righteous anger is appropriate in helping us to come to our senses. So now I've been watching the ABC show Mustard Dogs. A couple of them. It's an interesting show. Um, it's a reality TV show about this litter of working dogs that they sent all over the country. And the, uh, the farmers, the trainers had 12 months to train up these dogs so that they were good working dogs and they could work the cattle. And there was one particular um, owner uh, who got one of these dogs, a, a farmer, a trainer, and um, his dog was trouble. <laughs> and so much trouble that he named it Lucifer, right? True story. Named it Lucifer. And he, he had troubles training this dog. And, um, and you know what happened is they got this guy who was an expert in, in uh, training dogs to come in. And um, you know what this guy said? Uh, to uh, to the farmer, he said, basically, he said, you need to get cranky with your dog sometimes and your dog needs to know that things are important. And he never, ever had a growl in his voice, the uh, the farmer. He, he was only ever kind of chilled and laid back and this this uh, expert trainer came in and said, you need, to, you need to be stern and you need to have a growl in your voice sometimes so that, so that your dog knows that something's serious. And uh, you know when God gets angry, um, you, it, we're meant to pay attention, right? <laughs> there's a growl in his voice. There's something that's really significant that's going on. Go down to verse 5. The problem is obvious in verse 5. Um, you fed them with the bread of tears. They've been feeding on their own tears. Go down to verse 6. They are the object of contention with their neighbours. There's heated disagreement. You go down to verse uh, 12, 13, 16, uh, the walls have been broken down, all those who pass the way pluck its fruit, the boar from the forest ravages it. Israel have a big problem and it's right in their face, especially if the northern kingdom has actually fallen. And I want to ask you this morning, this is where, let's get personal for a little bit, do you know what that's like? You know, sometimes we can just kind of roll on with life um, and we can ignore problems and kind of pretend that they're not actually there or even pretend that you don't have one. Um, and, and, you know, there's a sense in which we can live on the grace of God and not even really know it. And I'm sure this is the case with Israel. You know, it's 200 years from the dividing of the kingdom to the conquering of the Assyrians. What were they doing in those 200 years? Well, in large part, they're living off the grace of God and His kindness and His forbearance. Um, but there was a time where the one who was slow to anger became angry and he brought trouble upon them. And sometimes God can do that for us. Have you ever had that? You just kind of rumble along doing your own thing. Maybe, maybe the, the stuff that you're doing, you kind of like the payoff of it. Or maybe the, the trouble that you have is just too hard to do anything about. Or, or maybe, and this is kind of this is going to end stage trouble in our lives that um, it just doesn't hurt enough to be motivated enough to do something about it. You know, maybe you can make the effort to deal with it, but it's only enough effort to make the pain go away so that you can just keep doing what you want to do. You know, I think we see some of these things in the nation of Israel. Um, here's a, um, a statement by, uh, a prophecy by um, Hosea. Uh, who prophesied around, who prophesied in the 8th century. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up. 
that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He's going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as showers, as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And you just go, this is wonderful. People are just in a really good place. And then you read the next verse and it's really disappointing. <laughs> what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away, that goes early away. You see that? I remember reading this as a young Christian and just going, I am going to put those first three verses on my mirror. I'm going to stick them somewhere. I'm going to memorize them. They're so good. And then verse 4 tells you it's gone in a puff of smoke. It's not genuine affection and love for God at all. It disappears like the dew, like a morning cloud. You know, you can see this. You see this all around. The deeper agenda for uh, Israel, a lot of the time, is, uh, is a deeper agenda that we have, and that's th- that we want to do what we want, and we want our life to go the way that we want it to go. You know, sometimes a little bit of pain comes along and we do something about it. Um, but once the guilt has subsided, <laughs> once some of the pain has gone away, we, we lose interest. But then there comes days where everything falls apart. Do you know what this is like? Have you ever had a day like that where it's just in your face and everything falls apart? Everything goes wrong and the pain is unbearable and it's like you're in the middle of something that's in motion and it's going to change things forever. And that day, your problem's a big one and it's right in your face. You see it. Everyone sees it. And it seems like no one can do anything about it. Have you been at that point? Well, it's not even close to what the Israelites were going through. We do understand a little of it from these kinds of micro moments in our lives. So we need to admit we've got a problem. Don't want to be in denial about it. The second thing is we need to correct diagnosis. Look at this refrain that runs through this psalm. It's a beautiful, beautiful refrain and it answers the question what's going on here what's going wrong what's causing the problem you know there's a difference between the symptoms of the problem and the problem itself right if you had the measles and you had spots on your skin and you went to your your doctor and you said can you tell me what's wrong you're looking for a diagnosis and a diagnosis has to grapple with the essence of what's going on. So if the doctor turns around to you and says, what's wrong with you is you've got spots on your skin, <laughs> right? You just go, right, you've taken a course in stating the obvious, right? Everyone can see that. Anyone who can see can see that there's spots on my skin. That's not the cause. That's a symptom. The symptom is that there's something going on much, much deeper with, um, with the measles, And you can treat the symptoms, but if you never actually get to the cause of what the problem is and it doesn't get resolved, you just keep getting the symptoms. A correct diagnosis grapples with the cause of problems. What's the correct diagnosis for the problem that Israel has? Because it looks like the problem is the Assyrians coming in and taking over, and that is a problem. But that's not the center of the problem. The center of the problem, if you look at this refrain that runs through this psalm, is a relational breakdown between them and God. This is huge. 
The place they find themselves in is the result of the relational breakdown with God. You can see it right throughout the psalm. We looked at this. God is angry with their prayers. He's broken down the walls. There's this, this plea in verse 14 for, for God to turn back to them. But this, this refrain here is the, is the goal that runs right through this psalm. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now, if you drill down to the meaning behind these first uh, two phrases here in this refrain, uh, you'll notice something um, about it. And another way of um, phrasing it is, uh, turn us, O God, o God, and turn back to us. <laughs> Bring us back to you, and you come back to us. You see, that, that's actually a relationship. You know, there is something concrete and physical about the kind of saving and the kind of restoration that the Israelites wanted. It did have to do with the, the land. But at the centre of it, at the core of it, this is what the problem is. And then you, you move on to, uh, to that middle um, section there, let your face shine. You know, if you ever see in Scripture um, God turning his face toward you, that's a very, very personal thing. A very personal thing. Another way to say it, and some Bible translators translate it this way, let your face shine, uh, could be translated as smile upon us. Turn to us and smile upon us. Uh, this is about deep and personal friendship. You know, it isn't just about God's face or being able to look at what he looks like. It's about being personally close to God. You see, they're separated from him and they're saying, God... Turn us back. And then they're saying, and then you turn back to us. You smile upon us. And what's the end of the restored relationship? What's, the, what's downstream of that? Well, the refrain is clear that we may be saved. This does have very immediate connotations for the people of Israel. Probably rescue from marauders and invading countries. At a, at a national sense, you can see it in the psalm, there's a longing for shalom. There's a longing for the way that things were, almost the good old days where, uh, where the nation was in a really, really good place. But notice this, God's saving is downstream of his people being close to him. And you know, the thing that they need saving from the most is not the situation that they're actually in. The thing that they need saving from the most is them. <laughs> That's what they need saving from the most. Check this out from Ezekiel. Prophesying in the 8th century too, around the same time. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. Listen to this. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. What did Israel need saving from with regard to themselves? Uh, Hebrews tells us. They always go astray in their heart. You see, Israel was a much bigger problem for Israel than any situation they faced even the fall of the northern kingdom. There were some big problems that they faced, but this is the biggest one. 
that they always go astray in their hearts. This is the most entrenched one. This is the one that caused the other ones. It was them. It was their wayward heart. They went away from the one who was life itself. What happens when you walk away from the one who is life? You die. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's logical. You go right back to the Garden of Eden. The reason why Eden in Genesis chapter 2 was such a flourishing place is because God was present there. And what did God say to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And they didn't instantly die, but they started dying on that very day in Genesis chapter 3 and it was a death by a thousand cuts. Why? Because they walked away from the one who is life. Folks, you simply cannot have life when you're disconnected from the one who is life. It doesn't work like that. Here's another way to put it. Distance is death. <laughs> Do you know that? Have you seen that in your life? Like those little micro moments where you walk away from God and you see death start to seep in? That's how it works. But you come back to God and you come really close to Him and He turns His face to you and He smiles to you and things are restored and all of a sudden life bubbles up. Have you noticed that? Let me make it really personal this morning. Um, you are a bigger problem in your life than any situation you will face. <laughs> That's what we do here at Restoration Church. We just be honest with you. All right. You are. Now, some of you might be sitting there and you're just going, well, you don't know the situation. I mean, it's, it's like, true, I don't. And I thought about this. I thought, is this, is this true? Is this true that our tendency, that we've got, still got a little bit of this kind of Israel kind of thing of going astray in our hearts? Is this true that we're the biggest problem in our lives and not just the situations that happen around us? And I'd, I would defend it. And I think this psalm is actually saying that. You know, when Israel walked away from God and their covenant with Him, they walked toward death. When you... Walk away from God, you walk toward death. That's what you do. When a church drifts away from being relationally close to God corporately, that church walks toward death. When a culture, the broader culture, Toowoomba, Queensland, Australia, the world, when, when the culture walks away from God, the culture walks toward death. Good things get corrupted. <laughs> the natural order gets disordered. Conflict happens, people hurt each other, they go to war. Shalom, the peace of everything operating properly is destroyed. But here's the good news. Uh, when you walk toward God, when you move toward God, you move toward life, 100%. When a church is, is committed to ongoingly moving closer to God as a group of people, they move closer to life when your neighbours and your friends at work who don't know Jesus, but through you they start to move closer to God, they are actually moving toward life. When Toowoomba moves closer to God, Toowoomba will move closer to life. Not to mention Australia and the world. And you need to know that God's plan of restoration is comprehensive. <laughs> 
it's not just about spiritual restoration. Theologian Christopher Wright breaks it down into four categories. He says that the redemption that God is wanting to bring is political, economic, social, and spiritual. God has very, very broad plans for the restoration that he's wanting to bring about around the place. And we're responsible for taking that to the world, which is why it's really important for you to serve God wherever he's put you. You know, there aren't spiritual jobs and non-spiritual jobs. We're all, we've all got an appointment from God to serve him and to worship him and to honor him and to bring life to the world and help people to get close to him. You know, we, we're containers of the Holy Spirit. If you love Jesus, you're a container of the Holy Spirit and you get to take him wherever you go. And uh, Jesus said this in John chapter 4 about the Holy Spirit. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give in him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God's going to see to it that you've got excess life. <laughs> you believe that? You know, you go to work. You're working in your garden on the weekend. You meet a neighbor. This is how it's meant to work. We're meant to get close to God and this life of God in the Holy Spirit is meant to bubble up out of us and us have access. And it's meant to spill on all the people around us. And our gig is that, that God's called us to actually help people to move closer to him, to the one who is life. How do you restore humanity? By getting them and God close to each other. <laughs> That's how you do it. Um, how do we be restored in ourselves? When we get close to God. And he's close to us. You know, we, we return and confess and, and God shows his favor to us again. Number three, number one, admit you've got a problem. Number two, the correct diagnosis. Number three, the remedy. It's in this uh, refrain here. Um, just going to unpack that a little bit because the situation here is dire and, and you'd be excused for asking, where's the hope? Uh, how is Israel going to get back? And by extension, how are we going to get back? Um, there's three, um, there's three verses that, that hold this refrain through the Psalm, uh, Psalm 80 there, and they, each one of them changes. And I just, I'm just going to read um, how they change. The bit that changes is how God is described. Verse three is restore us, O God. Verse seven is restore us, O God of hosts. God of hosts is uh, army general. And verse 19, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. You see where this is going? The hope for the people coming back is that God's their shepherd. <laughs> um, we see that in verse 1. He's enthroned on the cherubim. He's mighty. You see, God's the one that can actually do something about their wayward heart. And here's, here's the bottom line. Our, our biggest problem is us, but our biggest hope is that God can actually do something about us. God can do something about our hearts. And this is the backbone of the hope that people can have in God, that he can do something to bring us back. And I wonder, um, have you ever been through a patch or an extended season um, where you couldn't turn your heart around? You ever had that? You have a, ever had this wandering part of your heart inside where you just got this bias like a lawn bowl to just kind of go away from God and you, and you battle it and you fight it 
and it just kind of keeps happening. Have you had that? Like it was an out-of-control train that just kept heading in the wrong direction. Maybe it was a temptation that just kept coming up all the time and you just gave into it all the time. Have you ever cried out to God and just said, God, can you please just change this part of me that just keeps going wrong? You want me to go right, but I just keep going left all the time. If you've ever had that, I've had that. I still have it. There's times I go, God, make me go straight, please. See, that's the hope. It's the hope for Israel and it's a hope for us. What's the hope? That God can do something about your wayward heart. (laughs) That God can do something about your wayward heart. You see this in, um, in verse 17 and 18, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon you. <laughs> God would have us, just like Israel did through this psalm, Psalm 80, to, God would have us to cry out to him to straighten our wayward hearts. But do you know something? That's not the end of the story. The end of the story is not just that our hearts need to go straight, but when our hearts start to go straight, we need God to actually come to the party as well. It's not just enough for us to turn up and us to have our stuff together, to have a relationship. The other person actually needs to show up as well. No one can restore a relationship on your own. It's not how relationships work. So we need our hearts fixed and we need God to turn back to us, which is exactly... Uh, what this psalm keeps saying, God, turn us back and then you come back to us as well. So personal. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if any of you, as you've uh, as you read, just as I close here, uh, as you read verse 17 and 18 there, uh, I wonder whether your ears pricked up a little bit as you read that. And... Um, you know, I think probably Psalm 80 in 17 and 18, I think it's when it talks about uh, the man of your right hand, the son of man you've made strong for yourself. I, I think it's talking about Israel. But there, there are a bunch of commentators at this point in time that kind of go, oh, I think there might be something else on the go at this point. <laughs> right? Do you notice it there? Did you just prick up? There's a man at God's right hand. Uh, a son of man. Oh, that's interesting. That was a title for Jesus. See it in Daniel. See it in the Gospels. Perhaps, um, you know, this, this man doing something so that our hearts don't turn away anymore. You see that? <laughs> it, it starts to sound like Jesus, doesn't it? And there's a bunch of commentators who've just gone, yeah, that... That actually does sound like Jesus. It sounds like it could be a messianic prophecy. Is it? Is it, is it foretelling that, uh, that Christ is going to come? <laughs> Whether it is or not, I'll tell you something, this is exactly what Jesus came to do, wasn't it? It is exactly what Jesus came to do. Uh, the people's cry here in this psalm is for renewal, for restoration, in many ways, even for a new covenant. Help us to do these things differently. And you know, you know what? 
it actually came. (laughs) This is the way that Jeremiah describes it. This new covenant, this new deal that that was going to be brought about by Christ. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And then in chapter 32, this is the kicker, right? I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Listen to this bit. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, not terror, respect and honor, that they may not turn from me. Do you long for that? Do you long to not turn from God? I will rejoice in doing them good and I'll plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. I wonder if the band had come up. I wonder if this is you today. Do you have a longing for restoration? Personal restoration? Do you long for the restoration of of people you know who aren't close to Jesus? Do you see the death in yourself, the death in those around you that comes from being distant from the one who is life? (laughs) Need to run to him, don't we? Cry out to him that he would turn us back to him. And we know... Uh, that Jesus' death on the cross confirms the fact that when he turns us back to him, he's already smiling upon us. I wonder if you'd stand with me and um, I'll pray, we'll sing, and then we'll uh, have a benediction today. Jesus... All of us, uh, to one degree or another, get to taste. There's a lot of good things in the world, but we get to taste often the things that don't work, things that are corrupted, things that kind of been wrecked. And um, all the good things are still here because you're here. But um, there is in us, God, a a cry for uh, restoration. God, we need to we need to be clear that the centre of our restoration comes from being restored to you relationally. God, I thank you that you're so willing. Uh, the one thing that the um, Jesus, your death on the cross says is that God is willing. You love the world, you gave your only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. They get joined to you. 
whoever believes gets joined to you and gets life. So God, we thank you for that. God, we, we still see um, there's pockets of resistance in our own lives where we turn away from you. And God, we, we know that discipline and grit and tenacity, perseverance is important in dealing with those things, but they don't win the day. And we just want to say to you today, they don't. We need you to bring us back. And God, I pray for uh, anyone here today who uh, his heart goes wrong, just goes in a, in a direction that it's not meant to go. It goes astray. God, anyone who that statement out of uh, Hebrews 3 just rings so true for them today that they always go astray in their hearts. God, I pray today that uh, by your spirit, you'd cause them to cry out to you. Turn me. Turn me. Turn me back to you. God, that they would humble themselves and cry out to you to do what they can't do. God, would you turn me? Turn all of us in Restoration Church, in all of those moments where we, uh, we look away from you, where we drift away from you. Would you always come to us and turn us, turn us back to you and smile upon us again. Amen.